Good morning again. If you would please take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We're going to be continuing in our series on centered, being centered on the gospel. Today in particular will be centering on truth. What is the truth of the gospel? We were asking the question earlier, um, where are you from originally? There are like five of us who said we're from this area. Uh, I know oftentimes when people come to claim, they don't do so on their own volition, uh, but but they they are told to, ordered to. Thank you very much. What are the chances that I kick this over? <clears throat> We're going to be taking bids out there, polls. Um, but one of the things I, I, I feel about this town is, is I truly do love Colleen. And it's not that I'm from here. Uh, I am. I grew up in Florence, spent 18 years in the same house, um, spent every weekend just about at my grandparents' house on North 2nd Street here in Colleen. Um, I love this town. I do. I know many people don't, but man, one of the things I'd encourage you, you know, in, in the announcements times, we have this slide that says, be the church. Be the church. We want people to go out there and be the church in our community. Why? Because we want people in our community to come to know Christ. And I'd encourage you, I know, I know one of our elders preached a, a few weeks ago, and he was mentioning this, but man, we can't, we can't say we want to share Christ with people, and we want to love them into the kingdom on one hand, and on the other hand say, man, I sure do hate the place that I live. And I know that people oftentimes struggle with that. They, they fight that. Uh, but, man, I, I encourage you to, to start loving your community instead of just saying, man, I, I just hate living in Colleen. But, like, you know what? God is sovereign. God is over all things. And God, in his providence, in his purposes, he has placed me at Fort Hood, Texas. He has placed me in Colleen and Heights and Cove. He has a great plan with that. So I just encourage you to make sure that you, that you do love on your community. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things mentioned in our announcements is that we will be going to Guatemala in, in March. As I was writing this sermon out of Galatians chapter 5, I could not get Guatemala out of my mind. Pretty much any time during the season of the year, I can't get Guatemala out of my mind. But this passage in particular just stood out for me for Guatemala. It reminded me of, of this, this man that I met there. And one of the things that we do in Guatemala is, is we build latrines. They don't have a sewage system, so we pretty much build outhouses for families. And we're, our team was building an outhouse at this family. And while some of us are, are, are building the structure, others of us are sitting with the family. And, and we weren't shucking corn. It was right after their harvest. Their corn was dried out. I think it's called shelling corn. Can anyone, anyone know? Yes, all right, we were shelling the corn, basically taking the, gr- the dried-out kernels on the corn and, and popping them off so they could make flour out of it. And we were sitting down with this family, a man, his wife, his kids, we were all shelling the corn, and we just started talking about the gospel. We started talking about how, man, this great God of ours created the world, and he created us to be in relationship with him, but that our sin separates us from God, and the whole time he was shaking his head, yes, yes, this is, this is what I believe, this is what I believe. We talked about how Christ loved us so much that he sent, or God loved us so much that he sent Christ to die for our sins, and he rose again. He has shaken his head, yes. Uh, I, I knew this guy wasn't a believer because a pastor who sent us to his house, uh, the pastor that we work with, is like, yeah, they're, they're not. Uh, but he kept shaking his head, yes, yes, this is what I believe, this is what I believe. Um, 
And at the end of the conversation, um, he's like, yeah, our church tells us we believe the exact same thing as you do. But I knew that they didn't. Their church didn't believe that we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone. One of the reasons why I know this is because their church had put a hit out on one of our pastors down there uh, decades ago. But, but I knew that they didn't believe this. But one of the strategies of, of this guy's church was saying, we believe exactly the same thing as you do. And that's exactly what our passage is talking about. And I think we have the same phenomenon happen in our church. If you are at your house and the Jehovah's Witness knock on your door and they want to talk with you and, uh, and you begin a conversation, one of the things that they'll say is, we believe the same thing you do. We believe in the Bible. We believe in Jesus. We believe Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again. We believe all these things. We believe exactly the same thing you do, except a little bit, just a little different. You, you sit with a Mormon missionary at Whataburger uh, and, and, and talk with them. They'll say the same thing. We, we believe the same thing you do, the same God, the same Bible, the same Jesus, the same death, the same resurrection, but there's just a little bit of difference. It's not that big. It's not that big. This passage that we're going to read today talks about how a little difference makes all the difference in the world. A little difference makes all the difference in the world. So if you will, please read with me uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running so well. Who hindered you from the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. Um, and Lord, just reading it, I, I know that it's a hard text, a hard one to swallow, because we are raised in a culture and a time where, where we don't say that anyone is wrong, that everyone is right in their own belief. But Lord, your word confronts this. It says that, no, there is truth and that there is error. Father, through your spirit, may you direct us towards truth that we may know you and that we may not fall into error, O Lord. 
Father, for those people who, who are drifting away, they're drifting away from you, drifting away from the truth of who you are and what you've done. Father, may you use these words of yours in this text to draw them back to you. And Father, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at this text, we see Paul telling us a few different things that we want to focus on. We want to focus on these truths that Paul is telling us. He begins by telling us that Christ won our freedom. He then talks about how it's the love of Christ that compels us to work. And he kind of ends with telling us that truth matters. So we want to look at these three truth statements that Paul is giving us. And we want to start right here, that it is Christ who won our freedom. Look at verse 1 again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When we read that text, it comes to my mind that we have to answer two different questions. One question is, what were we freed from, and how were we freed by Christ? What were we freed from, and how were we freed by Christ? So whenever we begin this, we have to realize what the Bible teaches us is that we were freed from sin, from the enslavement of sin and the condemnation of the law. Think about it this way. I have a daughter at home. She is cute as a button. Uh, her name's Leah. And uh, I have to realize that when my daughter was born, she was born into sin. She was not born perfect and complete, but she was born broken. And this shows itself that as she grows up, her natural inclination is not to submit to my authority, but is to rebel against it. Her natural inclination is not to submit to the law of God that God has given us in his word, but her natural inclination is to do what she wants to do all the time, always. And I know this because it hasn't happened yet, because give it time. I know this because whenever her will, what she wants, comes to, at odds with what I want or what, what God wants in Scripture, what does she do? She rebels. The Bible teaches us that we are born as slaves to sin. We have these shackles on us that we are born with. And what happens is that when we have the law of God, the law of God shows us how we ought to live our lives. And so whenever we read the law and we come in contact with the law, the law is that which condemns us. So we are slaves to sin, and when we see the law, we realize we are disobeying what God's law says, what he wants, and we, as a result, are condemned by the law. And so that's what we are freed from. That's what Christ has set us free from. How did he do that? Christ set us free from the law by becoming a human being himself. He was born of a woman, and he lived an absolutely perfect life, obeying the will of the Father, obeying the law of God, so that when he was on the cross, he was the only being in all history and of all the earth who did not deserve death. Because death is a result of the curse of breaking God's law. He's the only one that did not deserve death. And yet there he was on the cross accepting death, accepting the punishment for sin that he did not deserve, accepting the shame that was not his. And then he rose again. So how 
did we become free from this law, this, this death? We did it through Christ's death and resurrection. And when we believe in Christ and we trust in him, what happens? These, 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 these chains that we are enslaved with to sin, they come off. And we're no longer slaves again. And so what does Paul say in verse 1 that we should do as a result? He says, stand firm, therefore. Since you are free in Christ, since the shackles of sin are off, since you no longer bear the guilt and shame of sin, what ought you do? You ought to stand firm. I like to think of this as, as, a, um, as a thoughtful stubbornness. A thoughtful stubbornness. And this is what I mean. Man, we can be stubborn about all sorts of things. Um, I showed up this morning, and one of our deacons was, was decked out in green. He's a Green Bay fan, right? Think about how stubborn people can be when Watts' name dropped or didn't drop the ball last week. <laughs> I have no idea, but man, people are adamant about it. People are stubborn about it. People on Facebook didn't just talk about on the balance. I think I still saw it this morning when I was online. They were stubborn about it. They weren't going to give up on it. And what were they so stubborn about? A game. A game. But when it comes to our faith, oftentimes we're just like this, this reed blowing in the wind. Whichever way the wind blows, we just kind of bend with it. And what Paul is saying is this, man, you have been freed. Man, the song we said, our, our, our sin was like an ocean. It was as deep as the ocean, but what was Christ's grace? Christ's grace was deeper still. We've been freed from that. You've been freed from such a great sin. Paul is saying, be absolutely stubborn about what Christ has done for you on the cross. Don't give in. Don't be blown by every current, by every thought that's out there, but be stubborn and holding on to Christ and have this thoughtful stubbornness about yourself and about what Christ has done for you. He says, do not some, uh, he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not, it says in verse 1, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That, that word, do not submit again, uh, literally means do not take on a burden. Do not take on a burden uh, of, of sin, of guilt, of shame. Do not take on again this idea that you have to obey the law perfectly in order to be made right with God. It makes me think of, of Israel in, in the book of Exodus. After God delivered Israel, they, they left Israel. They went into the wilderness. They were provided for by God, right? Bread from heaven, water out of a rock, dove falling. I never meet my limit when I go dove hunting. And here they are. They walk outside and dove fall down. Um, dove laying at their feet. They just have to pick it up, clean it, cook it, and eat it. And what do they say? They've been free from slavery. They say, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. If we could just become slaves again. If we could, if we could just have that again. And I want to say, don't you remember what the slavery was like? Where, where you were beaten, where you had forced labor, where you were ordered and had to throw your children into the Nile. That's what you're going back to? 
that's what you want? And what Paul is saying here is you have been freed from guilt. You have been freed from shame. You have been freed from the entanglements of sin. Don't submit again. Don't submit again to that burden. In the wisdom literature, it puts it in a different way. He says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. I know that is absolutely disgusting. I always talk my sermons over with my wife uh, like during the week, and she's like, don't, don't harp on that too much, because it's nasty. Uh, but I think it's so apt for what we do. Here we are. God's grace has freed us from our sin, freed us from our guilt, freed us from our shame. And what do we do in our freedom? We pick up our shackles and say, put them back on. Put them back on. Let, let me throw my child back into the Nile. Let me, let me become your forced labor again. And Paul said, stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in his grace. Stand firm in his forgiveness. And don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Whether that be going back to your sin or whether that be trying to to earn your salvation on your own because Christ's grace is deeper still. He's already earned your salvation. Christ has won our freedom. When we go to verse 2, what we find is that the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Let's read 2 through 6 again. Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What we have in verses 2 through 6 is Paul drawing a comparison between two types of people, the people who add to their salvation, the people who trust in Christ alone. Because what was happening in Paul's day is Paul would go around to places that did not have the gospel truth, that didn't have churches, and he would share the gospel, how we are saved by Christ alone through his grace alone, through having faith in him alone. That's what Paul would share, and he would establish these churches, and then he would move on to the next town to establish a new church. And then someone would come along behind him and say, you know what, Paul's spot on. We're saying the exact same thing as Paul is saying. But let me interpret Paul for you. Paul is saying that if you want to be a Christian, then you need to believe in Christ, you need to repent of your sins. But Paul is also saying that you need to do some work. You need to earn your salvation a little bit. You need, to, you need to be circumcised, as the Old Testament law says, and you need to obey the law for God to accept you. And we get this picture of Paul where he says, Look, I, Paul, I'm saying to you, don't do this. And I get this picture of... of of a parent like going up to a child, like me going up to my little five-year-old daughter and like 
I'm not shaking her. I'm like grabbing her face. I know from the hospital that we're not supposed to shake the kid. They, they show me a video before I take my child home. But you, you grab their face. You get down on their level and you say, listen to me. Look, let me, let me plead with you. Let me share with you my heart. Paul's saying, don't go back to the law. It's a small little change in their theology, but he says, listen, it makes all the difference in the world if you go back and think that what makes you accepted before God is is your own behavior, is your own keeping of the law. Look what it says. Christ will be of no advantage for you. Paul then continues on and says, you are severed from Christ if you try to earn your acceptance before God. You are fallen from grace, Paul says, if you try to earn your acceptance before God. Those are the shackles that we go back to. We go back to thinking, yes, Christ died and he rose again. I'm putting my faith in Christ. But at the same time, I still need to do a little bit of something. I still need to add to my faith works. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, when you do this, you are separating yourself from Christ. And Christ is of no advantage to you. The song we sang earlier, who, O Lord, had saved themselves, you alone can rescue. You alone can can say only you can 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 raise up from the grave he's saying we have no part in our salvation and when we add our works to it we are separating ourselves from christ so i had this question that i was asking myself when i was reading this text because it's kind of scary right this whole you're separated christ is of no advantage from you you've fallen from grace and i had to ask a question like how can i know myself if if i'm starting to add to the work of Christ. And it's, and it's this thought, you can put it in this question to maybe, maybe make it easier to, to understand. What makes you right with God? What am I counting on? What are the signs that I'm counting on something else other than Christ to make me right with God? And I have five different indicators in my own life that I can use to determine whether or not I'm doing this. Here's the first one. How do we know when we're adding to Christ? One, are you putting expectations on God? Are you putting expectations on God? You're saying, God, I believe in you. I have faith in you. I repent of my sins. I'm keeping your word. Therefore, I'm expecting you to do this in return. What are we doing? We're saying, we're saying I'm a worker, and I've done my work, and now I deserve my wages. God, you owe me. And whenever we're in this position where we're saying, God, I have an expectation of you and you owe me for who I am and what I've done for you, what we're saying is I have earned my way into God's acceptance. Another way we do this, another indicator that we are adding to the work of Christ is that we feel that God won't accept us when we neglect our good works. I think this might be a lot of us in here today. We feel that God won't accept us when we neglect our good works. What good works? I haven't read my Bible in a week. God is so angry at me. 
I haven't prayed and I don't know when. God, God is far off and he, he, I, I need to start praying more so God will be with me. Let me tell you this truth. If you are in Christ, if you are counting on His blood for your righteousness, God loves you even though you might not have read your Bible this morning. God loves you and accepts you even though you might not have prayed in a week. Whenever we start thinking that our spiritual disciplines are required for God to accept us, what we're doing is we begin to say, this is what makes me right with God. It's my devotion, my reading, my praying, my evangelizing. And what are we doing? It's this horrible thing that when we start doing that, what are we doing? We're, sep- we're actually separating ourselves from Christ when we get that attitude. Paul's saying, you are saved and accepted by God by grace and grace alone. Thirdly, an indicator that we are adding to the work of Christ when we feel that God won't accept us when we sin. Dave preached on this a few weeks ago. It might have been last week. Uh, where he said, man, we can never sin so great that God can't save us. Like that song said I mentioned earlier, our, our, our sin was deeper than the ocean, but his grace is deeper still. And whenever we feel, uh, when we feel that God won't accept us because we are sinning, we're saying, ultimately, that my good behavior earns me my acceptance with God. Even in the depths of our sin, if we are in Christ, Christ still loves you in that moment. Think about that. Men who are fighting pornography... Even when you click on that site, God still loves you. Those of you who might be fighting substance abuse, even when you take that drink, God still loves you. His acceptance of you isn't based upon your good behavior. His acceptance of you is based upon the work of Christ and the grace of Christ. And that's why Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's like he's shouting it. Know that you have been set free. Revel in it. Roll in it. You're set free. I think another sign that we're adding to Christ, the fourth sign, is that our lives are marked more by pride than humility. Our lives are marked more by pride than humility. Because what that's saying is whenever we do something good, whenever we're keeping our devotions or doing those good works or resisting sin, we start thinking, I'm, I'm pretty good. We start thinking that it's we who broke our own shackles, our own chains. And what happens when we start doing that, you know what we start doing? We start looking down at other people who aren't as good as us. And we live in this pride. And what, I think this, this sign that, that we're adding to Christ is that we have pride. Whereas if we realize every piece of goodness in us is there because Christ has put it there and has rescued us, what's that going to be? It's going to be like we look, at, we look at another sinner and instead of looking down our nose at them, what we want to do is we want to just hug them and say, I'm right there with you, but for the grace of God. 
And finally, another sign that we're adding to Christ, I think. This, is, this one came from my wife. Once again, she writes my sermons. Um, uh, it says, when you don't value your obedience unless someone else is seeing it, how do we know when we're adding to the work of Christ? When our value, or, or when we don't value our obedience unless someone else sees it. I think she's thinking about this because she's a, she's a mom. She's a stay-at-home mom. She's got three little ones tugging her on her all day. And man, you, you want to be sanctified. That's a way to do it. Um, and so there's this tendency of whenever we do a good work, and we, we want people to see it. We want people to pat us on the back for it. But man, really, if we're doing that, why are we doing that? We're, we're, we're adding to our own resume our own identity, saying this is who I am, rather than saying God is worth my obedience, whether people see it or not. So Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, draws this comparison between those people who are trying to add to the work of Christ, and then on the other hand, he shows us how we are truly saved. And this begins in verse 5. He says, for through the Spirit. So first and foremost, how are we saved? We are saved by a work of the Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 13 says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you the things to come. Earlier in the Gospel, John says that no one comes to the Father but that the Father draws them unto himself. How do we come to know God? How do we accept the truth that we are saved by the grace of Christ? It's first and foremost a work of the Spirit. And God draws us to himself by sending his Spirit to work on us. Think about that. Even your decision to accept Christ, those of you who are in Christ, even your decision to accept Christ is the work of the Spirit. You wouldn't do it on your own. But by the grace of God and the Spirit of God drawing you unto himself. How are we saved? It's a work of the Spirit in verse 5. And then he says, by faith. So salvation is a work of the Spirit. Salvation is a work of faith. Faith in believing that Christ is who he says he is and he has done what he has done is believing that. And then looking at our own sin and saying, I don't want my old life anymore. I want to follow Christ. I love him and I want to pursue him. That's what faith is. It's, it's, a, it's a turning away of your own life and turning towards Christ and believing he is who he says he is. So it's a work of the Spirit. It is a work of faith. And then what do we do once we're, once we're believers? It says, we ourselves, in verse 5, eagerly wait for the hope of of righteousness. So what do we do? Man, we realize that we're still broken as Christians, and we realize that we won't truly be free from all of our sin, free from all that until Christ comes again. He's broken our shackles, but man, we're just like the Israelites going back to our chains. We're just like the dog going back to the vomit. And so what do we do? We wait and we eagerly hope for Christ's kingdom when we will see God face to face and we'll look at our sin, and we'll look at God, and we'll say, I don't want sin at all. 
and even the desire and the temptation to sin will be gone. Why? Because we are face-to-face with our Savior. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're hoping for. And then he says, we're, he says salvation is a work of the Spirit. It's through faith. Once we're in the faith, we are waiting and hoping. And he ends this in verse 6. He says, what is our faith doing? Our faith is working through love. And that's what we're doing while we're waiting on, on Christ to come back. We have faith working itself out in love. What does that phrase mean? Faith working itself out in love. And this is what I think it means. It means that the love of Christ compels us. That's what it says in First Second Corinthians 5. The love of Christ compels us. It controls us. That we are so in Christ, it affects us. It changes us. So it's no longer that, that we change the way that we dress so that God will accept us. But since we are in Christ and we love Christ, man, it's going to change the way that we look at the way we dress. We're no longer accepted because we're saying no to that drink. But because we are in Christ, we're going to drink differently. It's no longer I'm going to be accepted by God because I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and I'm evangelizing. That's not earning our acceptance. But however, when we are in Christ and we see the greatness and the value of Christ, it changes us where we want God. We want to know him. We want to pray to him. We want to tell others about him. It's faith working itself out in love. Our obedience isn't to earn the acceptance and favor of God, but our obedience is because it's already ours. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And finally, Paul wraps it up in 7 through 12. He's not. He's, he's going to go on for another chapter. I'm going to wrap it up in verses 7 through 12, where Paul says that the truth matters. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who caused you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. We have language in this little paragraph that we wouldn't expect of Paul, that we might not even expect of the Bible. But I think it goes to show how Paul wants to defend the truth so much. He is that serious about the truth that when people start attacking the truth and saying, you need to be circumcised to be accepted by God, Paul just wants to say, go emasculate yourself. Get away. Be gone. He wants to protect the truth. You know, really, that's, that's why we have elders in the church. Because uh, our elders are, are like the guard keepers of truth for us. So that when error is being taught in our church, or error comes our way, our elders who are steeped in the truth can look at it and say, that's not true. That's going to hurt the body of Christ. And they want to expel that. But it's also true that each one of us need to be on guard against false teaching. He says, you were running so well. Who hindered you? Well, false teachers hindered them. 
false truth hinder them. One of the things that you need to do in your life, one of the things I need to do in my life, is make sure we stay away from false teachers. And believe me, there are a lot of false teachers out there. Just because a person is on TV, and just because a person can speak well, does not mean that they're speaking truth. All right? Just because a person's on TV and they can speak well does not mean they are speaking truth. Just because it's written down in a book and someone published it doesn't mean it's true. Perfect example of that came out this week. There's a book that was published a while back ago about a boy who had this near death or death experience and came back and said, Guys, heaven's for real. Right? You remember that book? It's probably still out there right now. And they are starting to talk about, well, this is an extra scriptural account of what heaven's like. That boy just came back and recanted everything. The publishers have taken it out of the bookstores because it's like, oh my gosh, we just put this out there like it's truth. And he just recanted it all. We have to be careful about what we believe. We have to to stick with the truth and what we know is true. We don't need somebody dying and coming back to earth to tell us who God is and what heaven is like because we have it right here. Scripture is sufficient enough to tell us all we need to know about God and salvation, about our hope of salvation in the kingdom to come. This is what I encourage you to do. He says, he says <laughs> little leaven works through the whole lump. My, my mom's like country cook extraordinaire. Um, cooks everything from scratch. She makes a pie, crust is from scratch. She makes rolls, she's making her own dough. So I, I watched her make it for, for years. And uh, man, it's, it's interesting, whenever she's making rolls and she mixes her flour and her water and everything else she puts in there, and then she takes this little package of yeast, little tiny package, cups and cups of flour, it's in there. She takes this little package of yeast and she mixes that yeast in. What's going to happen? That whole giant piece of dough is going to begin to rise because that yeast has worked through the whole dough. The same is true with false teachers. You might want to listen to someone on TV because you know what? They're engaging, and there's 20 other thousand people that are attending his church. And it might be that, that, that man, he just says some things that are just true. But the question is, is there some false teaching in there as well? Because that false teaching will work itself out through all of his teaching. And when you begin to buy into that teaching, what you're doing is you're inviting into your own heart, into your own mind, false teaching. See, so we'll see what, what are we supposed to do? I think one thing you can do, if you want more preaching, go to your elders, elders of our church. They're, they're in the bulletin. You can email them. You can call them and say, who do you recommend I listen to? Because there's a lot of false teachers out there and y'all are guarding our church against false teaching. Who should I listen to? And they'll, they'll give you a few podcasts. I think the second thing we have to do is we have 
We have to fill our own minds with the truth. My uh, have good friend from high school, we were having breakfast the other day, and uh, we were talking about our old youth minister, and he's like, you remember what our old youth pastor, old Brent Batson, used to say? He'd say, Gigo. Like, what? I don't remember that at all. I remember playing basketball. And he said, no, it's Gigo. He's like, garbage in, garbage out. If you spend your life taking in false teaching into your heart, man, that's eventually what you're going to be living out and speaking out. Same is true. May you put truth into your heart, into your mind. The truth is going to come out. Uh, over the summer, we had a, a series with the youth on the spiritual disciplines, and, and one of the first ones about Bible intake. And I was trying to make the Bible like less intimidating. We look at this big book and say, man, it's too big for me to even try to read it all the way through. And I said, well, you know, it's only like 72 hours of reading. It's like two weeks of work worth of reading because if you listen to it on audio, 72 hours. It's not that bad. Not that big of a deal. It's not that intimidating. One of our youth said, you know what? He's right. I can do that. I, I, I don't even have to do it in two weeks. I, I could do it in one week. And so he, he, he committed himself. He said, all right, that's going to be my job this summer. So I'm going I'm to do the Bible in like 10 days. All he did was eat, sleep, and read the Bible. Listen to it some on audio as well. Um, he actually drew stick figures for each story. So he has like three one binders of, of Bible and stick figures. Uh, and, and he actually forgot his Bible at church this past uh, Wednesday, and he came back during the week to get it, which I like, because most of us say, ah, I'm not going to read it anyways. I'll pick it up next Sunday. Um, but he came back to pick up his Bible, and we were talking about that experience. I said, did, what did you think of it? He said, man, that's great. I loved doing it. I said, like, why did you love doing it so much? He said, because everything I heard and everything I saw, man, I was connecting it back to a Bible verse somehow. Because he was just saturated with the truth. We need to saturate our own lives with the truth. I know we probably can't do the Bible in 10 days. That's extreme Bible reading. But man, filling our hearts and our minds with the truth so that when false teaching comes up, we can see it for what it is. And not only that, we can correct others. James says this in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We need to be in community deep enough so that our brother and sister in Christ can look at our lives and warn us when we start believing some false teaching. might be our, our typical way of doing this is small groups in our church. You don't have to be in a small group to do this. You can meet with one or two other people every other week and just pray together and read scripture together and challenge one another. We call them, we call them covenant groups. We don't have small groups in Temple or Belton right now. We'd love to get one started, but we just don't have one right now. And that, that's not going to keep you from meeting with somebody on a regular basis challenging one another in the truth. Um, when I was preparing the sermon, it's just a reminder that truth matters. One of the commentaries I read was by John Calvin. He had a guy that wrote like the Christian Institutes, like two volumes that thick. Um, 
And we always think of him as this heady intellectual, far from people. But when you read his commentaries, you read how much of a pastor that guy was. And he said this truth about Christ being the only way to the Father and how works separate you from Christ, he said this truth is worth dying for. We have people, I was talking with Eric Brown after the first service, and he said, you know, that's still true today. People are still dying for it. They ran the numbers, uh, and he was telling me that every five minutes, a Christian believer is killed in this world, the Middle East. Five minutes. Why? Because this truth is worth dying for. This truth is worth keeping. This truth is worth celebrating. This truth is worth telling other people about. And that's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you have rescued us from slavery, how we are free from sin and we are free from shame and guilt. So, Father, I pray that as we leave this place, we'll go forth being controlled and compelled by the love of Christ to live in a Christian way, O oh Lord, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.